Hey guys, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, where I interview the absolute best health and wellness practitioners from across the globe to show you what they do so you can do it too. This is because, like you, I did not always feel that health was easy. I tried different diets, exercise plans, but often felt misled by an industry that really thrives on you not getting healthy and always spending money on the next new thing. Because of this, I'm getting bare naked on health and pulling back the curtain to show you that being truly healthy is simple. Wherever you are in your health journey, I want to show you that with minimal effort, you can get maximum results and do what you love. Play with your kids, go for a hike, and crush it in your business all while feeling great. To give a kickstart, I encourage you to go over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to access my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and that the show is really sponsored by you guys. Each of you that works with me that I am able to take on as a client helps me to be able to keep putting out these podcasts for free. So I just want to thank you, each of you, for your love and support. Hey guys, I'm your host, Nick Horowski, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, episode number 103. In today's episode, I interview soon-to-be naturopath Guillermo Ruiz. Be sure to stick around for the end of the show, as Guillermo schools me on prolotherapy and other injections, as well as naturopathy and the bright future for botanical medicines. Alrighty guys, welcome to another episode of the Bare Naked Health Podcast. And on the line today, I have Guillermo Ruiz. Guillermo, first question I ask everybody who sh- who comes on to the show is share us with share with us your health journey up until this point, please. Well, you know, it really is uh, twofold. You know, it's my own health and then seeing the health of my family members. Uh, and it kind of like converged at the same time. I always knew I wanted to be a doctor. Um, ever since I remember having a Fisher Prize, one of those plastic stethoscopes and taking it for show and tell to school. And, uh, and you know, it's, it, I'm a, a, non, a non-traditional student. I did my first 14 years of education in Mexico. I was born in Brownsville, Texas, then uh, moved back to Texas and started high school. So, I, you know, my family, is, they're really proud of what I'm doing, but I had to figure out this education system on my own. And as you know, uh, if, if you want to be a doctor, you start training how to take this, uh, uh, this exams from kindergarten. And I didn't know how to do that. So it took me a little bit longer to finish my postgraduate and, or my uh, graduate education uh, and I always wanted to be a doctor. Then I, I kind of learned about the PA uh, profession and I was like, well, that sounds good. So I started, uh, I started taking classes, pre-med classes, became an EMT, uh, love emergency medicine. And then I sort of figured out that what you're doing, uh, in outside of what emergency medicine is, sometimes doesn't work really well you know you 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 have a you have a disease here's uh, here's your script in the past you know the doctor diagnosed the disease process sent you to the pharmacy and the pharmacist decided what uh what medication to use but like you said and i, I, and I want to bring that up quick too like you said acute care like western medicine emt like that's fantastic when it's needed but not necessarily great for the whole disease process then too you know, and, and, and you can trace back this to, and now we're going to go into all sorts of directions. You know, now you can trace back uh, to like when penicillin was was discovered. You know, uh, a staph infection could kill you. And and you had this, this disease process and uh, you did whatever you could do uh, to get rid of it. And then uh, by, by a mistake, Fleming got some contamination in one of his Petri dishes with some yeast and found that penicillin was really good at killing bacteria. So then you start, you have this penicillin. It's, it's like almost a miracle. Same thing happened with diabetes, type 2 diabetes, oh, type 1 diabetes. Kids were put into very um, 
low calorie diets and just kept them you kept them surviving for as long as possible and then a scientist was able to to synthesize uh the insulin hormone and overnight you had a cure and uh this they couldn't synthesize synthesize this hormone fast enough and they would get letters you know from parents saying please my daughter's about to die. She needs this. And imagine being in that in, in, in that situation where you're only synthesizing so much and you can't really use it uh, to save everyone. Thankfully, now we can use bacteria to synthesize hormones and, and now you know everyone can get insulin. But without getting too far into, uh, out of this topic, what happened is that we have a war on cancer. We have a war on on. Uh, obesity and a heart disease we are looking for deep penicillin for heart disease deep penicillin for for um for diabetes or you name uh, you name it and and the problem is that these processes are not one fat they're, they're not one facet you know they are so many environmental epigenetic even you can go into spirituality and all of these different things that can affect this disease processes so there's not going to be a one silver bullet approach to these things but since we have we had so such great success treating these diseases in this way we think we can treat everything like this so what ends up happening is that if you have a thyroid problem here's your thyroid medication if you have ms he, here's your ms medication uh, parkinson's you know it, it's so sad that we have basically two drugs to treat parkinson's and you're basically just speeding up the process and once they don't they stop working they put you in hospice care and that's it so instead of looking for the penicillin for autism the penicillin for cancer the pen let's take a step back and do true preventive medicine and once the disease processes gets in then we can start looking at environmental factors at uh, maybe some supplements maybe diet your sleep patterns and all of those things together are going to be more successful than actually looking for the one compound in the universe that is going to reverse the disease process. And it, so by taking this approach, I, I kept looking at this and I was very frustrated because I could see that we could save a life, you know, a horrible car accident, and we could patch someone up and they would walk away from the emergency department the next week. But when it came to something uh chronic we didn't have really good answers for that and and you know we have a prescription pad and we can when when you have a hammer everything looks like a nail um <laughs> so so we try to fix everything in this way and it, it turns out that that's not the way the best way to do it so you know uh, i struggled with weight you know uh, a lot in and being uh this ones and zeros kind of mind i wanted to figure out why i wasn't you know losing weight so one of my friends was doing this crazy thing, you know, uh, eating like a caveman. And he gave me Good Calories, Bad Calories, the, the book, you know, and, and I started reading that book and I started looking at all the, this different evidence. Uh, turns out that maybe the answer is not a ketogenic diet for everyone, you know, it, but, but it's a good way to start if you want to see why there's so much bias or why there is so much, so much uh, confusion when it comes to research. At the same time, my girlfriend's mom was diagnosed with cancer. Okay. So you have this, you know, I'm trying to optimize my health. And at the same time, someone in uh, that is very close to me is being treated in a way that I didn't agree. You know, I remember uh, I print, you know, go and pop med, evidence-based medicine, print out a bunch of articles on, on this particular type of cancer, jejunal cancer. Her first symptom was a complete obstruction of her small intestine. Now, imagine, it's a tube. By the time that two-centimeter tube gets completely obstructed, there's metastasis everywhere, okay? And, and if you go on PubMed and you, and you type you know, jejunal cancer and celiac, there are so many articles on that connection, and it makes sense. You're irritating that part of the intestine so much, one of those cells is going to mutate, and now you have cancer of the jejunum. And she takes all this evidence to the oncologist, an evidence-based practitioner, 
he grabs those papers and he says, eh, it's nothing you did wrong. We're going to get together and fight this cancer. And, and it's a great message for someone that needs motivation. But there is genetic material in the form of daughters, sons, uh, family members that have the same codes as her in, 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 in uh, their genetic makeup that need this information in a simple intervention such as removing wheat could prevent the development of cancer in other family members. And he just ignored it. So, it, you know, we think of evidence-based medicine as this sacred cow. And, you know, where is your cow now? You know, you just slaughtered it because your biases, because you're looking for that one chemotherapeutic agent that is going to affect that, you know, and uh, in, in, it turned out it didn't work. You know, it was a, a late stage cancer and that changed my perspective. So then I started looking at, you know, how am I going to be a practitioner that looks at the whole system, not just what medication you know what 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 can I put in my script at and uh, and it turns out that I wanted to do medicine in a different way I wanted to talk to people about sleep and exercise and diet and spend more than five minutes with them and uh, I remember listening to Chris Kresser uh, being interviewed by Rob Wolf and he was talking about functional medicine and he mentioned naturopaths and I was like what's that googled it and it turns out that naturopathic medicine found me not the other way around, because that's the way we used to practice. Uh, and that's how I ended up in this profession. Uh, there are, in, Just like in every aspect of medicine, there is a lot of uh, biases and there are, there are a lot of uh, erroneous information. So I like to, uh, I find myself in like uh, trying to make those connections between evolutionary medicine, traditional medicine, and evidence-based medicine, and trying to connect that bridge to make sure that when we approach the patient, we have the best stuff for the patient that is going to work. And at the same time, we're not jumping the gun and going for uh, disease suppression rather than disease resolution. Yeah. <laughs> now, I know there's so much in there. And yeah, Guillermo, I'm curious, like, how do you... How do you find yourself trying to pull all of those different parts of it together between, like you said, looking at it from the, the disease prevention, but I mean, y you have so much to research. You have so much that you would want to implement with somebody. How do you try and as, as a medical practitioner kind of keep that as concise as possible to help with the individual that's in front of you then? Well, you know, it helps and now, you know, and it's so crazy, you know, because we're going to, I'm going to talk about a couple of like maybe uh, uh, difficult subjects for some people to, to digest, you know, but like, for example, it starts with the way the healthcare system is based, is set up. We have this fake economy where you pay a third party company money to manage your care and then they build your practitioner and then there's like a, a little bit of exchange of money between the patient and the practitioner and there's no pricing. It's just this fake economy that creates the five minute vi visit that creates the, you know, the, uh, that only certain amount of, of procedures are going to be um, uh, covered by the, pay by, by the insurance. So now who is the real physician? Is it the person on the phone answering from the insurance company that's telling you, no, actually, those labs are not covered? Or is it the physician? So it starts at the economic level. And then the second thing is that when you, when, when you have insurance and you open that insurance book to see who's your practitioner, there is no vetting. You know, it's who's taking appointments. And then they select that, that practitioner they go there and then uh, and then they say, "Hey, my kid has a viral infection. I need an antibiotic for my viral my virally infected kid." And then the practitioner says, "Well, it's a viral infection. You shouldn't give antibiotics." And then the parent says, "I have to go back to work. I'm going to get fired if I don't go back to work. You better write me that prescription, or I'm going to change practitioners." So now the practitioner is forced, you know, to doing things that they're not being taught, you know. So what happens? Uh, how do I self-select? Well, first of all, I'm in naturopathic medicine. Uh, it's not covered by insurance in most states. Some states do have some coverage. So that that allows me to select my patients. Who's going to come to see me? Someone that has a primary physician already. 
but it's not that hasn't been enough to fix them. Someone that and and then I created a, a smaller niche by uh, I love the paleo diet and and the concepts of it. So now my my the people that are learning about me know about the paleo diet. So now their their diet is already they know what I'm going to say about diet. So that's selected, and maybe they did the diet and it's not fixing them completely. And you know the saying, you know, a patient that treats himself has a fool for a patient. Sometimes you got to step out and you have to see what you're doing wrong. And the only way of doing that is through a practitioner. So now that's two methods of selection. So now when they come to see me at the, uh, at the Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine uh, student clinic, they know that I know that, that I'm going to tell them to stop eating seed oils, uh, stop eating uh, wheat particularly, and they need to sleep better, exercise more, and uh, – and just have uh, this uh, mind-body connection that that it's missing from uh, you know uh, a bunch of uh, in society in general. So now, how how much harder is it to take them to the next step by maybe giving them very uh, specific supplementation by uh, by counseling them on maybe they need to increase their carbohydrate load, maybe they need to decrease their car- carbohydrate load. Uh, maybe do some thyroid supplementation, uh, some adrenal supplementation. So it, 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 it is a more effective way of treating a patient rather than having someone who has been smoking for 15 years. They walk into the, into the, uh, into the room. They have five minutes to tell you my shoulder hurts. What do you do then? Well, you're going to inject them to something with something that's going to re- reduce the pain. That's suppression of symptoms. That is not true healing. Yeah, so it, it, it is just interesting how how many ideas are connected into this health thing. Guillermo, I'm curious about your thoughts because before you had said like keto diet is not the fix for all and now like saying like, okay, maybe decreasing carbohydrate load, maybe increasing carbohydrate load and what are your thoughts on carbohydrates? Like where do we stand? Because right now they're like you said, like talking of good calories, bad calories, like they're being vilified like all over the place. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. you wouldn't mind just kind of sharing a little bit about what your feelings are on them. Okay. So um, if if you visit my website, I have uh, my statement on diet is, you know, I, I follow a paleo diet. Unfortunately, paleo is this code word for what we do. But paleo is not eating bacon and drinking coffee every day. That's not paleo. <laughs> Even though, you know, I had a conversation with Keith Norris on my podcast and we yeah. talked about how it makes you feel like you're part of a family. And that's very important for your psyche because, you know, you walk around and you see someone with paleo and then you wink at them and say, coffee and bacon, and they laugh and they understand, you know, but that's not paleo. Paleo is not a ketogenic diet. Paleo is not a high animal saturated fat diet. Paleo is not a, you know, paleo is an anti-inflammatory diet that is appropriate for the disease process that you're having or the the status where you are. You know, if you work out, if you're a high charging athlete doing a ton of CrossFit workouts, you know, eating some safe starches to replenish your glycolytic levels, it's going to be so, so good for you and, and your performance. If you have a pre-diabetic person, you might need to reduce their carbohydrates in order to help them regulate that that uh, that process. Then we get them exercising. Then they become elite CrossFitters, and now they can start eating carbs again. If you have someone with like horseshoe kidney disease where they can't process protein properly, you're going to re- reduce their protein levels, and you you might substitute that with good fats and some uh, and some carbohydrates. Now. If that person eats nothing but protein, they're, you're going to shut down their, their kidneys. Who is to tell me that prescribing a good diet for that person that is less inflammatory, that is uh, appropriate for the, their disease process, and it's evolutionarily uh, uh, in, in accordance with that person, who's that to tell me that that's not paleo? No one. You know, that's a paleo diet for that person. The problem is that as humans, we don't like a maybe approach. You'll never sell a book that is 
this may be your best solution for your diet needs. Now you got this it there. The Let's get the, the maybe diet. Somebody's got to come out the with maybe this, diet. right? Yeah. The maybe diet. That's not going to sell, you know? <laughs> so what what ends up happening is we, we end up, uh, what sells is a very firm idea. Eliminate all animal sources of protein. That's easy. That, you know, you can, you can change your, you know, your whole diet in a matter of a second, you know, uh, like for example, I had a vegan breakfast this morning. I'm just drink, drinking coffee, <laughs> you know. Uh, so that's a, that's a, that's my uh, uh, vegan approach to my first. And then I'm gonna have some maybe some turkey or something later on in the day. But this maybe approach, it's difficult for people to follow and understand. You know, uh, uh, my girlfriend. You know, I I I used to listen to way more podcasts before I started medical school. But you know, I keep up with a couple of podcasts. And uh, I get really excited about, you know, some of the things that Chris Kresser says. And then my girlfriend is like, okay, you need to translate this to, for me because in the end he just says, well, maybe. And, and, but there's so many things that so much information and we can apply it to different people at, at different levels. But maybe it will work. Maybe this is the answer. And that's why you need a practitioner so they can narrow down those maybes and they and they can give you actionable things. Yeah. Uh, I think that's an awesome point there. No, and it really is, Guillermo, because people think about it. It's like, well, and that's what I'll tell people a lot of times. Like, I, as a physical therapist, like I'm going to give people a lot of options as far as what could happen, what, what what we have is in our arsenal to be able to give to them. And I'm going to tell them all the things, like the lifestyle factors, all of that. Uh, but I'm going to hone in on those exercises. I'm going to say, Hey, these are what you're going to want to do. And it's not going to be, well, maybe, maybe No, I mean, like you said, it's, I, they're seeing these thousand and one exercises, million and one exercises out there, but they want, they don't want that maybe because they all might work for them, but they want to get honed into what's going to give them that relief. And same thing with any disease process. You don't maybe want to see what's going on. You said you go with that paleo, but then you're going to pare it down and find what works best for that individual. And and you know it, it, you you're a PT, uh, and and you want to get someone to start squatting and deadlifting. You know those compound exercises, uh, but maybe they they have MS. Maybe they have you know uh, osteoporosis. You're not going to jump them into you know doing Fran or or doing you know a, a crazy workout like that because you're you're going to break them. But in this maybe approach, you can start them doing, you know, uh, some resistance training and maybe pick up a PVC pipe. And eventually, the goal is to get them into a place where they can deadlift, squat, and strict press. Uh, but it takes time, and, and you need someone to guide you. Uh, as a, in, in school, I've done a lot of uh, pain management. And we do, I don't know if you're familiar with prolotherapy. Uh, so we yeah. do, yeah. So we do. I, I do prolotherapy. Uh, we do a couple of things with stem cells. Uh, if you wouldn't we mind, do, I, I was going to ask you yeah. about this. So if you could give people a little bit of an overview on what this is, and then kind of dive into what you do with it, how you use it as well, please. Totally. So okay. So the American uh, Academy of Physicians just released a paper last uh, and this earlier this month, saying that to treat acute, subacute, and chronic uh, pain. Uh, the first line of treatment should not be opioid uh, pharmaceuticals anymore. Okay, so w what should be the the approach? Funny. Why is nobody screaming that from the rooftops though? <laughs> uh, I, you know, I I've been working on a blog post about this, and hopefully I'll get it out pretty soon. But uh, so the approach, the first line approach is that the American Academy of uh, Physicians is saying uh, to do are yoga, acupuncture, heat or uh, uh, exercise. So, you know, it's funny because we call those things, you you, you know, you might hear call, uh, people calling them alternative medicine. I think that there's only medicine. Medicine either works or it doesn't. There's no alternatives. And now that those are the first line of defense against chronic pain. If, and it makes sense. You know, remember when talking about, we were talking about suppression of symptoms versus actually correcting a problem. Okay, so uh, are, you, are is your audience familiar with the term hormesis? Just give a quick overview so okay. everybody has an idea, please. 
so when you when you're growing muscle, you know, you you are actually going to maybe you want to grow your biceps, so you start doing curls, and you're going to create micro micro fractures on your muscle, and those and, and those muscle fibers are going to tear, and then your body is going to go, oh shit, I need to go repair this. It goes and repairs it, and what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So then that muscle is going to be beefier, it's going to grow faster, you know, it's going to be bigger, and it's going to be stronger. So what we are doing with prolotherapy is we are giving the body a second chance to heal a joint or, uh, or, or a, a joint space. So for example, you have a, a tear in your, uh, in, in your shoulder capsule, okay? And because of inflammation, because, because you work until three o'clock in the morning and you're watching TV late and you're not exercising, you know, your body misses the, the, the complete resolution of that pain and now you have this subclinical, very low-grade pain on that shoulder. What we do is we go in with an injection containing a little bit of dextrose, which is irritating, some B vitamins, lidocaine and procaine, and then we inflame the area a second time. So now your body goes, oh crap, it hurts, and it sends its cytokine cascade into that area, and by second pass, it's going to try to fix whatever was wrong. So we're like signaling the, the, the body to go there and redo its work. And so instead of giving you a pharmacological agent that is going to take the pain away where you're going to continue using that joint and maybe hurt it more, we're actually doing a hormetic treat treatment where we're going to re-inflame that joint a little bit, controlled inflammation. Then we fix your diet. We have you sleep more. We do all of these things. And then uh, your body is going to have all the tools to go fix it. And instead of suppressing that symptom like you do with pharmacological agents, now you're giving your ch the chance, uh, your body the chance to go in and actually fix the problem. And guess what? Then it doesn't hurt anymore. So that's what we're doing. So we're doing a lot of that. We're doing, uh, in, in, but we don't just do a one treatment, which doesn't work really well for like case studies because everyone wants to know what the silver bullet is. But if a patient comes in to my clinic, uh, to uh, the school's clinic, and they have back pain, we do some myofascial release because you're overcompensating your muscles. You're going to use certain muscles more than others, and that could cause, in itself, could cause pain. We're going to do some e-stim to get the pain out away super fast. And then we might do prolotherapy. We might do acupuncture. We always recommend exercise to strengthen that. And then we see them. Uh, about two or three times and then we send them to a PT because you are going to be the one that gives them to 100% health. We cannot be uh, jacks of all trade, yeah, all trades. We have to have this synergistic um, uh, and uh, synergistic and compensatory modalities in order to give true resolution. And remember, always the basics, sleep, exercise, and diet. So, so you jump from from just a pharmacological agent that might that might predispose you to a heroin addiction, to this very well thought, huge uh, uh, type of pain management that I think that is the future of medicine. Now, what I was going to ask because I see very very minimal people who have had prolotherapy. I mean, I know stem cells uh, currently aren't covered by insurance or anything. Where does prolotherapy fall with that? Do you know, or is that more a state-by-state -state issue? Uh, well, it is, it, it, it is going to be a state-by-state -state issue. Uh, there's, uh, there's a clinic out in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, in Sunrise, Florida. Uh, it has been run by Kristen Camella, and she's a big advocate. You know, the FDA last year wanted to put restrictions on uh, the usability of stem cells, and the FDA was going to basically say, you are not allowed to use your own stem cells to heal yourself. And they fought it and, and, and they were able to uh, reverse that and that didn't happen. Um, I think that stem cell needs way more uh, research. We need to look at it, you know, um, what can be fixed with PT, you know, as a, as a first line of intervention uh, at this point, sometimes we're jumping the, the gun because it's sexy and we're trying to treat with stem cells. So I think there's a hierarchy. You know, maybe we need to start with some 
diet, exercise, and sleep. And then if that doesn't work, maybe, you know, a more uh, honed-in approach with a PT. If that doesn't work, maybe we need to go in with Prolo uh, or PRP. PRP is when you take uh, blood cells, you spin them, spin them down, and now you have the cytokines. You don't have to inside the cytokine response. You're actually injecting the cytokines into the joint. And, or maybe some people need regeneration, and that's where you would use stem cells. So we need to be very careful because, yes, this stuff sounds really sexy and sounds like medicine from the future, but let's cover our bases first, you know, and th- let's do a gradu- graduated approach because stem cells are expensive. You're talking about thousands of dollars of worth of treatment. If it can be fixed with something as easy as not eating wheat anymore, why not try that first? And then as we as we get more sophisticated as the disease process advances, maybe we can do prolotherapy or PRP. And then if, if, if someone is really degenerated, maybe we can jump to stem cells. Now, Guillermo, you've done a lot of research, a lot of work with botanical medicines then as well, correct? Correct. See, yeah, let, lighten up with that. I'm, I'm curious, I mean, because I know you've done – I'm countless research on it. Like, where did, where was that sparked? Like, where did you really start your interest with that? Uh, and then I have a few more questions, but I just kind of want to know where, where did you really get going into that? Okay. So, uh, talking about economy again, you know, uh, so you have the MD approach to medicine where you're going to get a catalog to your patients that they can just look you up to see if you have a spot and you're going to be fed, you know, your, your, uh, your patients in this non, uh, in this high risk, high reward world of unlicensed or not unlicensed, but un, uh, uninsured medicine as, as is uh, naturopathic medicine, uh, you have to do something to stand out, you know. And I went to Paleo Effects 2014 and uh, Rob Wolf and, uh, and Mark Sisson were having a discussion on the future of Paleo. And they were like, listen, guys. There's only so much that we can do. It's your turn. And I was sitting there and I was thinking, oh, oh shit, I'm in school. There's a research department. I have to do something. I like research. Let's make it happen. So I came back and I got involved with the research department at SCNM. And my, one of my first projects uh, uh, it came about by, you know, there's a lot of memes in, in natural medicine. And uh, at, like plants are perfect and, you know, they're perfect medicine or whatever. And uh, one of the students said, you know, the coolest thing about uh, botanicals is that if you use a botanical against a bacteria, the bacteria will, will never create resistance. And we were like, wait a minute, that makes no sense. So we started... Um, misusing botanical tinctures to treat bacteria. So we were using less than the amount needed to, to kill the bacteria to make resistant bacteria to botanicals. And then, uh, so then we, we were able to create vancomycin-resistant bacteria with botanicals. Uh, now, this is in vitro, you know, and, and there are different levels of, of, of uh, research, you know, but I want to m- make sure that People understand, you know, that's how evidence gets advanced. You start in vitro, and then you can go into animal models, and human models, and the double-blind placebo-controlled, you know, trials, and then meta-analysis. So then we took that resistant bacteria that was resistant to all of these uh, uh, botanicals, and then we crossed them to see if they were resistant to actual antibiotics. And it turns out that if if a bacteria was resistant to um, uh, B botanical and C antibiotic, that means that that botanical and that antibiotic have the same mechanism of action. So now we can use this information because if a patient comes in with a type of bacteria, now we can use this information that we've gathered and make a better blend uh, of botanicals for them because we know exactly how that uh, plant material is working. So again, w- how we did this whole experiment, we asked herbalists and naturopaths, what are you using to treat staph? And they gave us around 80 herbs and we tested e- every single one of them. So that's a traditional aspect. Out of those 80 herbs, around five were as efficacious as the antibiotics. So we took those five herbs 
we made bacteria resistant to those herbs in order to find the mechanism of action of those botanicals. So now we can take those mechanisms of action, combine different plants with different mechanisms of action, and create a truly synergistic blend that is going to attack the bacteria, not just with one mechanism, but multiple. And that prevents the creation of resistant bacteria. So you see how we went from traditional, evidence-based, and then, and then evolutionarily, because bacteria can create resistance, you combine all of that, and now you're creating a, 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 a botanical blend that is going to be so hard to become resistant to because maybe one of the botanicals is a beta-lactam, another botanical is a quinolone-type uh, 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 botanical, another botanical might uh, inhibit DNA replication, and then you add something like echinacea that is going to immune-boost you, and now you, you're using the botanicals and your own immune system to fight disinfections. Yeah, so, and, and, and uh, one of my pet peeves is walking into um, like a supplement store and looking at, at antibacterial uh, formulations, and then they have like the same type of family, plant families on the same botanical, you know, like you'll have four berberines. Chances are evolutionarily, those old berberines are connected they are going to have the same mechanism of action. So layering uh, those mechanisms of action, uh, it's going to put more pressure on the bacteria to create resistant to berberines rather than taking a berberine and a Lamiaceae and you know different families and creating a truly synergistic that, that is going to have different mechanisms of action. That's a wild way to think about it, but it makes yeah. so much sense that you're not just putting all your eggs in one basket and saying, all right, let's hope this works. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and that's, and that's something that, you know, that happens in medicine a lot. You know, uh, it, it, when you go to residency, uh, you have someone with diabetes and then they'll, they'll tell you pearls, clinical pearls, like, Oh, you know, anytime I give this, um, a, a diabetic, uh, every time I have a diabetic patient, I give this cal uh, calcium channel blocker to save their kidneys. And I use this specific one. Why? Oh, because that's what they taught me in residency. And, and that this information keeps, pa kept, keeps passing on to the next generation, the next generation. And then you're prescribing this medication because someone told you to. Same thing happens in, in botanical medicine. You know, uh, oh, how do you treat a strep infection? Oh, I give this botanical. Why? Oh, because it traditionally this is what we use and for this botanical. Cool. And and what ends up happening with the research that we're doing when we're doing high throughput screening of different herbs, we have herbs that traditionally have not been used to treat anti uh, uh, antibacterial uh, infections or bacterial infections, and we're finding new herbs that were not thought to be working like that to have antibacterial activity or antiviral activity, which is pretty cool. Do you grow any herbs yourself? You know, I have a brown thumb. I cannot grow anything. <laughs> uh, uh, maybe I should. Uh, uh, one of the things that, that we do, you know, um, when we first started doing this research, we would, uh, we would always buy commercially available tinctures to try it. And then we had, we had one plant that was so good at fighting bacteria so good at fighting bacteria. And then all of a sudden, every single bottle of that tincture was not working. And we're like, what's going on? Did the bacteria become resistant or whatever? So then we start looking at, at, at all of the different variables. The, the producer of that tincture had switched from dry herb to fresh herb. And there's another meme that the fresh herb is more active or is more, has more plant nutrients or whatever. And it turns out that for that specific plant to be antibacterial, it has to be dried. Something happens in the drying process, it activates something and it becomes antibacterial. If you have that plant in the fresh uh, form, it is not antibacterial. So, so what I do if I don't grow herbs is we do create all of our tinctures that we, that we test. So we start with either the fresh product or the dried product and then we do different 
different uh, extraction methods with with ethanol or glycerin. Could you go into some of those? Because I I enjoy making my own tinctures, but I'm always looking to learn a little bit more about it. And I've actually been talking with some people about making tinctures recently. So if you could say like, okay, what do you do? Like, what does the maybe start to finish look like on certain tinctures then even please? Okay. So for example, we work with a plant, an antiviral plant, okay, that, that, uh, that traditionally has been antiviral. We proved that it is antiviral. And, um, and uh, in, 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 if you look at the traditional methods, if you extract it with ethanol, it's going to be more for uh, antiviral. If you do a tea, it's going to be more for thyroid uh, support. So we're like, okay, so we, we started using this plant as, a, as an ethanolic extract. And then we discovered that actually the water extract was way more powerful as an antiviral. Okay, so whatever molecule in that plant is acting as an antiviral has high solubility. You know, it's very um, ionic and it, and it pulls out in water better than in ethanol. So that's when we started thinking about maybe... Okay, so we can rely on tradition because these people have been using this for thousands of years, but maybe we can optimize tradition by using microscopes. And so now, anytime we start using a new herb for something, we start with a 1 to 10 extraction on 75% ethanol and, and a 1 to 10 extraction on water. So then, you know, and, and that covers basically the gamut of, uh, of solubility. You know, uh, after we find a highly, highly effective uh, herb, then we go back and we do organic extractions. Anything from hexane, which is non-polar, to water, which is super polar. And we do a 1 to 10 extraction on like 10 different buffers to see which one is going to be the most active. And that's going to give you what the polarity of the molecule you're looking for. So then we take that and then so we can optimize things. But it's, it, you know, uh, in, in uh, uh, botanical medicine, you learn of, you know, uh, like the best time to harvest. Uh, you learn uh, how to, you know, what's the best way of extracting. And what we're doing is very clinical. We do a one to ten extraction with water, one to ten extraction with ethanol. See if those work. And if they don't work, move on. That doesn't mean that that herb doesn't have uh, a function, you know, in other ways. Uh, like for example, when we're testing for herbs that fight staff, we, we ask people and say, and, and some practitioners were like, we use echinacea for staph infection. Well, echinacea turns out in vitro is not antibacterial. And that's cool because echinacea is known to be an immunomodulator. So it's not actively killing the bacteria. Is allowing your body to mobilize its immune system, the, the, the immune system, to kill the bacteria. So we're cool with that. I, I another pet peeve that I have is that people will talk about uh, botanicals and they'll show you, oh, this botanical is antiviral, anti, you know, antiviral, antibacterial, a nervine, a vulnerary, uh, cures cancer, and uh, and you know, get rid of your hemorrhoids. You know, and then and then they go to the next herb. <laughs> And they'll say the same exact thing. Oh, this is an antiviral, an immune modulator, an antibacterial, and a nervine. And, you know, uh, maybe, you know, but let's first, before we start, you know, trying to see how many uses that one plant has, maybe let's get good research data on one amazing use for this plant. Let's put all the evidence, that This let's take this anti this historically antiviral herb, let's test it against different viruses. Let's figure out what is the actual mechanism of action. Let's, uh, let's make it, uh, 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 let's spotlight it in PubMed so people start noticing uh, uh, this plant. Uh, and then once we, once we have the research behind it and that plant is it's being used for this, uh, you know, maybe we can move on to the antiviral or, or the immunomodulating and then, but not, it. You know, we need to do, we need to be really concise and really expand this whole thing and, and make sure that it's working and have, you know, because that's how we use credibility, you know, 
plans. Uh, the number one problem that we're facing in this world is not cancer. It's not, you know, uh, uh, heart disease. It's bacterial resistance. By 2050, more people will die from bacterial resistant infections than anything else. And if we don't find ways of fighting this bacteria, we're screwed. So as, as uh, uh, a physician, you know, or, uh, or a health practitioner, being able to find this botanical uh, tinctures that now that, that we can remember, we can combine different mechanisms of action. OK, so now they're working synergistically and then using them properly, not make the same mistake that we've done with antibiotics. You know, we can completely avoid disaster because let me ask you, how many plants are out there? I assure you there is one plant out there that can kill the most resistant form of TB or the most resistant form. I think there was a, a pseudomonas outbreak recently, and, and it's just about making sure we put the time and, and the effort to make sure that we don't create the same mistakes. The only problem is that there's not a lot of money in patenting herbs, so uh, so it's hard to uh, to get you know people outside of the naturopathic research department to pay attention to these things. Yeah, I can't imagine trying to, like you said, just get any of the funding or anything that you need to be able to do yeah. this. And yet, clearly, in the next. Uh, Really, not not too long. Thirty plus years. There, uh, this is going to become a very serious problem that needs to be addressed, and we have that available. Like Mother Nature is giving that to us. We just have to listen to her and just apply it, rather than trying to come up with all these new chemical compounds and just all these synthetic things. To really always just need something more. Let me give you a quick example of on how we can use traditional medicine to make evidence-based medicine, okay? So Zika, you've heard of it, you know? Okay, so it's an emerging uh, uh, infection, you know, uh, it's caused by mosquitoes. So there is not a lot of traditional evidence or traditional uh, books on how to treat Zika with plants. Right. But there is a lot of information on how to treat dengue with plants. So what we did, we looked at this traditional uh, 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 writings, you know, to see how are, is yellow fever, dengue, all of this, um, this similar viruses that are in the same family, filovirus, you know, as, as Zika, okay? And, and we took those plants that are effective against dengue and yellow fever, and, okay? And then we got a hold of some Zika, and we started treating the Zika infection with this traditionally uh, used plant. Guess what? We found plants that kill, that kill Zika. So now, again, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel, but we have to understand three things. That there is a lot of information to be learned from traditional methods. You know, it, they, it, they have been around for many years for a reason. We need to un understand evolution. Those the, the Zika virus from the same family is going to have some different proteins as dengue, but they're going to be pretty similar when they in the method of infection. Okay, and then thirdly, not just start prescribing this medication. Figure out which ones are the best botanicals that that we can use in vitro at, at, to begin with. Uh, to fight the Zika, and now we have some perspective. Again, how many plants are there? Are you going to start just testing random plants? No, we can we can prune down that approach by relying on evolution, by relying on traditional methods, and then nail it down with in vitro assays and evidence based medicine. Yeah, so it, it, it's a big roller coaster, but so exciting. So Guillermo, you're getting pretty close to graduation now, and what what are your plans now going forward? I mean, is it going to be staying heavy in this research? I mean, talking about working in the student clinic now, what do, what do you see yourself, uh, what's on the horizon? Well, so uh, I love research, and I am going to be uh, part of research at some level. Uh, you know, I, I hope for the rest of my life, 
but I went to medical school to heal humans, not to kill pathogens. So I do want to, you know, I, I do want to uh, help people like my girlfriend's mom, you know, like uh, I, I think, you know, uh, pain is so important. I do want to help people that, that are in chronic pain. Uh, it's sexy to treat athletes, you know, and, uh, you know, optimize performance and that that could be like a hobby of mine. But I hope, I hope, I hope that I uh, that I use my knowledge and you know all the things that I've learned to help people that really, really need it. You know, uh, people that have been sick for a very long time, they can't get into that right groove. Um, I try to to volunteer uh, in different uh, uh, helping uh, undocumented undocumented people here in the valley. Uh, and and just try to go there and and you know do acupuncture treatments for arthritis and things like that, but always always talk about traditional Mexican diets and talking about traditional uh, you know uh, one of the things that we do a lot for uh, for people with high blood pressure uh, hibiscus tea has really good research in lowering um, blood pressure and hibiscus tea is a traditional tea in the Mexican culture. Uh, the only difference is that when we, uh, when uh, my attending physician and, and, and me, we made the recommendation to add hibiscus tea to try to lower blood pressure, we asked him to not put any sugar in it, <laughs> which is going to you know, help it a little bit more. But just making those, again, the traditional and the evolutionary and the evidence-based, you know, try to combine them to try to get this, you know, people to get better. So hopefully I'll be practicing and hopefully I will continue in this paleo movement. Um, I just submitted my presentation for AHS, the Ancestral Health Symposium. I was there last year with a poster on, on this very topic. Um, and uh, hopefully this year I can go up there and, and talk, you know, do an oral presentation on how to use traditional evolutionary and evidence-based medicine as, as a whole. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's exciting. You know, 16 weeks and I graduate, so it's getting nerve-wracking. <laughs> Uh, one thing that you said in there, uh, I'm curious, what is like more of a traditional Mexican diet look like then? Because I think in the U.S., well, a lot of our versions of that are probably a little bit different than reality. Okay, so um, nixtamalization. Are, are you familiar with that? Say that again. Nixtamalization. No. So nixtam in uh, any of your Mexican uh, listeners will know that in order to properly uh, prepare corn, okay you have to nixtamalize the corn. And what it, that does, it releases the endospore, it releases the protein and, and, uh, and a couple of vitamins uh, that, that make, they, they become available. When Cortez came into Mexico, he uh, saw that the, the Aztecs had built this whole empire with corn. And he was like, cool, I'm going to take this to Europe. Took it to Europe, forgot the nixtamalization process. And people start dying of pellagra, okay? So, so, so that's, okay, traditional, you know. In it, traditionally, uh, when you prepare anything with corn, you nixtamalize it, and that's how you make the masa to make tortillas, okay? Now, my mom, I'm from the northern part of Mexico. It's a little bit different cuisine. And my mom used to make flour tortillas every once in a while. Like, talk about, like, once a month. And then when she was making those flour tortillas, it was a special occasion. She would have to make them with wheat, okay? She would make around 15 of them because she had to, like, hand roll them. And she had to, you know, prepare all this stuff. And and then five siblings, so we fought over <laughs> tortillas. So if you weren't fast enough, you wouldn't even get one. So, so then what happens when we move to the United States? I can walk into any restaurant and have flour tortillas. 24-7, you know, every single one of my meals could be made by a machine, uh, you know, uh, that is not as traditional as a nixtamalized tortilla, okay? So we have that problem when, you know, this, this affluence uh, where uh, it, since it was a special occasion to eat flour tortillas, you go to a restaurant, the restaurant is going to offer flour tortillas. So talking about a more traditional diet, Talking about, you know, traditionally, Mexican people didn't eat a lot of pizza. <laughs> traditionally, Mexican people would eat a, a nixtamalized form of corn 
you know, with, uh, you know, so that's, that's carbohydrates, you know, I'm not against eating carbohydrates. Um, maybe, you know, some meat in, in a very, you know, in a very specific way with a sauce always. So you have a lot of spices, you have a lot of different things that are going to be good for you. Maybe instead of drinking Coke, maybe you can drink hibiscus tea. So now you're taking this not this mismatched diet because of affluence, because we want to, you know, we came to the United States, I want to eat a hamburger. You know, we take this approach and we make the connection that it's all about uh, tradition and evolution. You know, go back to your roots. Go eat that tamal without any guilt, you know, uh, because that's going to be, that's probably going to be a better choice for you with your genome and your epigenetics than eating something that you, you that it's new to you. Now, that's not to say that technology isn't good. If you want to raise someone's glutathione levels, one of the best things to do is to drink whey protein. Whey protein has a uh, precursors to increase your glutathione levels. Uh, uh, when people say, oh, you know, we are the only animal that drinks another mammal's milk, I like to say we are the only mammal that wears pants. So sometimes technology is useful. Uh, if that person has a whey allergy, of course, don't don't drink whey protein. But we let's use technology to our advance uh, at, for our advancement, and try to stick to you know to traditional methods of cooking, to traditional diets, uh, for the most part. I like it. I like it. it sounds simple, like you said. Uh, it's very to, simple. It really is. Guillermo, uh, coming up on closing here, uh, one of the questions I always ask is, who would you want to hear on this podcast? But having a podcast of your own, uh, who is somebody that you would want to, like you, you really just would love to have on the show, and what is one thing that you would definitely want to ask them or hear them talk about? Well, who do I want to have on your podcast? You need to have a discussion with Allison Crystal. She's a she's a PT. I uh, know she's an OT that is doing some crazy stuff uh, to help people uh, to help kids uh, on the spectrum and to help kids. You know, uh, amazing talk at AHS last week. So if you can get a hold of her, I can connect you with her. I'm mind blowing stuff. Um, and who would I like to uh, to uh, well, you know, in my podcast, you know, uh, someone like Neil Gaiman or someone like uh, 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 what's the guy who uh, uh, wrote Watchmen, uh, Jeff? That I'm not well, sure. yeah, I, I know Neil yeah. Gaiman. I've read some of his work. Love it. Yeah, yeah. So that that's that's what I want. You know, someone that is completely outside of. Uh, of of the paleo community and 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 then just it, it would be a very selfish um alan moore <laughs> alan moore i would love to have alan moore alan moore if you're listening to this he's he's like kind of like a hermit so he doesn't do a lot of interviews what would you ask uh, him if you had yeah, a chance yeah oh totally yeah you know uh this paleo thing man you know it has it has like connected so many things in in my life you know uh like it got me more got closer to my traditional diet. It got me, you know, I got to meet, I met, you know, you name it, you know, I, I met. And uh, last year at the Bulletproof Conference, I met Rick Rubin. He was just hanging out at the Bulletproof Conference. And I was like, damn, you know, he is one of my heroes. And if you don't, you know, if your listeners don't know who Rick Rubin is, go to Wikipedia. He has produced albums yeah. from any, everyone from, the Beastie Boys to the Dixie Chicks <laughs> and and everything in between. Uh, JC's uh, 99 Problems, you're crazy for this one, Rick. He's referring to Rick Rubin. And just to, to see who this movement attracts and who is paying attention to this perspective of health is just humbling. So it's, it's pretty awesome. Well, Guillermo, in closing, where can everybody find out more about you if they want to work with you if they just want to check out all your stuff where can they go for all of that okay so if you want to uh just look at my blog uh 3030strong.com 3030strong.com uh same uh handle for uh twitter facebook instagram all of that uh all of that stuff uh my podcast is on itunes 
3030 Health Podcast. Um, you can find it through my website. Uh, I have a couple of really cool guests coming up. Uh, very excited uh, about, about some of the people that are daring to come to my, give me an interview. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and yeah, so on my website, you can find some of the papers that I talked about. I've published around four or five papers so far in botanical medicine. We have two papers coming out in this, uh, this following two quarters. Uh, we're going to have one on the treatment of plantar warts using botanicals and one uh, on the treatment of HSV lesions. So that's, that's very exciting to actually have been peer-reviewed and, and putting those, that information out there on PubMed. So if, if, and, and any questions, you know, that I'm usually uh, pretty fast at responding. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Guillermo. I mean, everybody go check out 30's 30 Strong. The podcast he has over there is awesome. It has had some great guests on so far, as well as just some of the shows that you've been on have been awesome. Uh, Guillermo, thank, thank you, you again for all that you're doing. Really appreciate it, and uh, best of luck with everything. Thank you, man. Talk to you later. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to head over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to check out the show notes for today's episode. While you're there, go to my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach, and the show is sponsored by you guys. Each of you that I work with helps me to be able to put out podcasts like this for free, so thanks again for your love and support. Finally, if the show has helped you out in any way, please head over to iTunes to give the Bare Naked Health Podcast a positive comment and five-star rating. This really goes a long way in getting the word out with how simple health can be and helping to share the podcast with others, so thank you. Mm-hmm.